Hello, you're listening to New England Climate Conversations, the podcast all about the impacts of climate change and how we can make a difference. I'm your host, Owen, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Dean, Luna, and Corbin. On this episode, we'll be talking about the effects climate change has on indigenous groups, the causes and consequences of an increase in mosquito populations, and plans to use the power of artificial intelligence to address climate issues. First, let's get into our weekly Climate Bites. For those tuning in for the first time, Climate Bites is a rapid-fire segment about recent major climate events. I'll turn it over to Dean to start. Thanks, Owen. Hi, everybody. So to start off our Climate Bites, I'm going to talk about uh, how the instances of ticks and Lyme disease are probably going to be worse this year than uh, years past. So... Most residents of the north, northeastern U.S. are familiar with ticks and the risks they pose, but a new study published in the February issue of the American Journal of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene has pinpointed the stage for people at the highest risk of contracting Lyme disease. So in addition to the states from Maine to Virginia, the researchers also identified states in the upper Midwest, such as Wisconsin, Minnesota, and a small part of Illinois as high-risk regions. So again, you know, you see the scope of, uh, of, of, of tick populations and consequently Lyme disease um, expanding due to the uh, warmer temperatures and climate change. You know, uh, the freeze isn't as deep, so tick populations don't, don't take as much of a hit. And uh, this year, although it hasn't quite started yet, we might be seeing a tick season um, that's, that's, that's been significantly worse than ones in past years. Following our climate bite about ticks, uh, we, we haven't ha- actually had too many um, inclement weather incidents this year, but a pretty notable, notable one has been the, gen- the winter storm in North America, um, unofficially winter storm Heather, that lasted from January 13th to 16th. So this particular winter storm originated as an extratropical cyclone over the northeastern Pacific Ocean on January 12th and moved ashore the following day, bringing heavy snowfall and ice accumulations to areas closer to the coastline than usual, in addition to um, unusual weather, uh, generally speaking. So this, this, this winter storm across this multi-day period resulted in 30 deaths, at least 100,000 power outages, um, 335,000 flight delays, and uh, weather... Um, ranging from heavy snow in different parts of Tennessee to uh, gale force winds in Oregon. Recently, global warming has contributed to an increased frequency in powerful hurricanes. As a result, some climate scientists have proposed adding a sixth category to the Saffir-Simpson scale, which is the scale that most people are familiar with to describe a storm's intensity. They argue that the existing scale, quote, becomes increasingly problematic for conveying wind risk in a warming world, end quote. Currently, any storm with speeds over 157 miles per hour uh, would attain Category 5 status. The proposal is to change Category 5 to include storms with winds between 157 up to 192 miles per hour and classify storms with winds over 192 as Category 6. In the past 11 years, we've already seen five storms that would have met the proposed criteria to be classified as Category 6 hurricanes. 2013's Typhoon Haiyan, that made landfall in the Philippines, 2015's Hurricane Patricia, which hit Mexico, 2016's Typhoon Maranti, which impacted the Philippines and Taiwan, 2020's Typhoon Goni, and 2021's Typhoon Ray, both of which also hit the Philippines. Maine is one of the top maple syrup producers in the region, but lately, the industry has seen a large drop. So-called normal seasons can no longer be expected, as industry experts have come to assume. Last year, the industry experienced a 25% drop in output. 
That's about 500,000 gallons, a record low since about 2012. The primary factor is the wildly variable environmental conditions of the region. Initially, the maple trees were too cold for sugars to tap. On top of that, the trees quickly became too warm at the end of the typical tapping season. On top of that, the trees quickly became too warm at the end of the typical tapping season, which meant that the sap ran early and rapidly, and at a smaller volume. Innovation and adaptability is the key to fare through these challenges. In a forthcoming episode, I will cover the maple syrup industry and the details concerning these challenges and resolutions. This is Luna with New England Climate Bites. Back to you, Corbin. Thank you, Luna. I cannot find any information on as to when this started, but I believe it or not, AI or artificial intelligence is a useful tool in addressing climate change. Seen more recently, companies are using AI to help compile and organize climate change data so it may be viewed by professionals and addressed. AI has been helping scientists with more accurate weather predictions due to their ability to data crunch and do calculations, along with the more insightful knowledge it can give from straight data rather than word of mouth and memory, making it a terrific addition to the climate change battle. AI, for example, could give more accurate drought predictions for Kenya, giving better data to help pastoralists and farmers. AI will also strengthen communities between people during natural disasters and to help communicate warnings to brace for said disasters. There are plans to use AI for urban planning, waste management, and traffic control to make areas more livable and sustainable. As stated, AI will increase the accuracy of weather and natural disaster predictions, but it will also provide better modules for climate patterns, take note of climate trends, and implement it into predictions, and provides a clearer understanding of climate change and effective tactics to combat it. California has recently adopted an AI that detects smoke or anything that can be considered an anomaly, giving quick and real-time alerts for active wildfires in the state. In San Francisco, a company has started using AI to try and clean the decontaminate and decontaminate water, so it may be used more than once to cut down on water usage and preserve water in the state. Another good usage of AI is using it to see satellite images to try and predict where deforestation is occurring based on their proximity to water sources, cities, and other key factors. So we've noticed that AI will help with predictions, data collection, and can give some pretty good recommendations on the proper and best strategies to combat climate change. But AI can also be implemented into a smart grid, allowing it to properly distribute power and communications in a two-way flow of electricity, helping people better understand their energy usage and savings, as well as allows companies to better distribute the power and electricity themselves. AI is hopefully going to speed up energy transitioning from non-renewable energy to renewable energy, improving energy efficiency as well as its effect on the culture. Carbon capturing is one of the many uses of AI. Carbon capturing is when carbon dioxide is captured out of the air before it can get into the atmosphere and is stored away so the atmosphere is harmed less by the industrial sites and energy-related sources. AI helps this entire process become more efficient and faster at stopping and store the carbon dioxide before it gets out, and not to mention how much more cost-friendly carbon capturing would be with full usage of AI. Though AI is great and extremely helpful addition to battle uh, climate change, it does have some negatives. Making the AI itself involves very intense energy usage, which produces uh, less than satisfactory carbon footprint on the environment. As the climate and weather models become more complex, as well as the enormous amounts of data the AI needs to run through, the energy usage directly affects the greenhouse gas emissions, directly aggravating the climate culture.
The parts and components of AI are considered e-waste, which consist of hazardous materials such as lead, mercury, and, and cadmium, all of which are dangerous for both us and our environments. AI does beg a serious question currently, and that question is asking if using AI for all these matters is ethical or not. The rising usage of AI in farming could mean excessive usage of pesticides, decision from AI could be based on biased uh, information, causing inaccurate answers. In the end, artificial intelligence needs a balance between economic growth and environmental protection. In conclusion, artificial intelligence would be a great addition to our arsenal of climate change fighting weapons, but needs to be closely watched and regulated. AI, as helpful as it is, would be, uh, would be more of a negative effect than positive if left on its own. Using AI properly requires a perfect balance so we can use it and keep the environment safe. To give a little bit of a mental image, building and training one single AI module emits roughly 620,000 pounds of carbon dioxide, which is equal to the emissions of a 62.6-gallon gas-powered car that is in use for a whole year. So trying to balance the numbers and keep them balanced is one of the biggest factors that must be considered. Though AI is an amazing tool that could be super helpful for us, we can't expect it to just fix up uh, and change climate change for us or for the world. This is on us and only us, but it could significantly improve modeling, data collection, and organization, and can help us find solutions to our climate problem, but we need to do our own parts to help with climate change. Have you noticed an increase in mosquitoes where you live? Well, with 2023 setting the, re the record for the warmest year this far, it's no surprise that you've probably seen more mosquitoes around. Mosquitoes live and breed in hot, humid, and wet places, and with the earth being the warmest it has ever been, mosquitoes have had the chance to live and breed for longer before the cold winters come. The increase in our global temperature not only causes them to live and breed longer, but speeds up the process it takes for viruses or parasites to grow in the mosquitoes. That means malaria, West Nile virus, Zika, and yellow fever can be expected to increase throughout the world. There are currently over 200 different species of mosquitoes here in the U.S., and 12 of them have the chance to spread disease. That may not sound very threatening, but there are more than 3,000 different species of mosquitoes. Those 200 are the only ones recorded in the United States, which brings us back to global warming. The warmer it gets, the more habitable places become for mosquitoes to thrive. As of writing this, December 4th, 2023, eight cases of malaria have been reported. 47 states are reporting cases of West Nile virus. And hopefully putting this into words kind of gives an idea of how widespread this problem is, not only in the U.S., but around the world. And climate change is one of, if not the biggest leading causes. In the United States, West Nile virus is the most reported mosquito-borne illness. So let's touch on that a little. West Nile virus has symptoms of headaches, joint pain, joint pain, body aches, vomiting, diarrhea, possible rashes, fatigue, and weakness that may last for weeks to months after recovery. In serious cases, West Nile virus attacks the central nervous system, resulting in a fever, neck stiffness, disorientation, tremors, convulsions, numbness, paralysis, coma, or even death, as well as the symptoms I previously mentioned. One in 50 cases are serious. There are currently no specific antiviral treatments for West Nile virus, but for some mild cases, clinical management of fluids, rest, and over-the-counter medication can help with the symptoms. Climate change has affected our precipitation throughout the world, making it occur more frequently and with more intensity than it used to. This in turn is birthing new wetlands for mosquitoes to lay their eggs in. A mosquito's life cycle starts as an egg to then a larva, pupa, and lastly adulthood, where they become airborne.
Male mosquitoes have an average lifespan of 10 days after reaching adulthood, and females have an average lifespan of 42 to 56 days. The entire process from larva to adulthood takes 10 days. Female mosquitoes return to water after the airborne stage of their life is done to lay their clutch of 100 to 200 eggs into preferably stagnant water. So buckets or tires left outside filled with water, any kind of pool, any marsh or swamp located close to your house are the perfect places to check out if you believe you may be near a mosquito breeding ground. So, now we have touched on how and why mosquitoes are becoming a larger threat, but what can we do to prevent it? Well, to prevent mosquito breeding grounds, there's a few things you could try, like cleaning all the debris and dead leaves out of your gutters, make sure any decorative waters or pools are clean, mow your lawn on a weekly basis, and making sure any water collectors on the bottom of potted plants are empty and clean. When outside, mosquitoes can be a nuisance, so bug repellent, mosquito netting, a fan, funny enough, works to some degree on repelling mosquitoes because they can't land in a flow of air. Bug zappers and lastly candles are strategic ways you might be able to save your home from pesky mosquitoes. And with that, I'm going to pass it on to Luna for her piece. Have a great day, everyone. In a previous episode, I briefly covered the effects of sea level rise on an indigenous community's ancestral land in Ile de Jean Charles in the Gulf of Mexico. The Jean Charles Choctaw Nation's ancestral land on that island is 97% below water. The Department of Housing and Urban Development had awarded the tribe almost $50 million to resettle the community, the first of such a project. The nation was hit with roadblocks and fumbling on the part of the state. Among the problems was the neglect of a state agency to reintegrate tribal members displaced in previous years and that they would not be eligible for relocation funding. Other tribal nations from the region were not included in this plan, like the United Huma Nation. This is one of many instances of a misalignment between agents of the state and sovereign tribal nations. This is part of a small picture of a centuries-long violence of colonizing agents and indigenous tribes. For remediation issues like climate change resettlement, a tribe that is not federally recognized is effectively cut off from funded projects. On this week's episode of New England Climate Conversations, Indigenous Issues and Climate Change, part of an ongoing series of how indigenous tribes in the New England region are being impacted by climate change. In what is now known as the state of Maine, the Wabanaki people, a loose grouping of nations including the Aroostook Band of Mi'kmaq, the Holton Band of Maliseet, the Passamaquoddy Tribe, and the Penobscot Nation are one of populations most at risk for disproportionate harm because of climate change. Upcoming, a short survey on the particular risks that the Wabanaki face and some solutions that are currently in place to address the damage. These particular ethnocultural problems are all interconnected. It's important to consider that feedback in between these aspects within the system of fragile living nodal substances, especially since the Wabanaki pupils are dispersed across the region and largely working within non-tribal cities. Some of these starts include muggier winters, species replacement, particularly of keystone cultural species like the moose, and the erosion of coastlines. Because of warming temperatures, Maine is seeing diseases of warmer southern and westerly climates that impact wildlife. Consider something like the ash tree or the paper birch. If you visited the region, you are likely to have seen those captivating woven baskets with complex weaving and vibrant colorways and imagery. The plant material necessary for making these cultural expressions of love is gradually becoming harder to obtain. Fishing, where indigenous tribes utilize millennia-old traditional techniques to gather food from the waterways, is quickly becoming exceedingly difficult without the use of mass industrial fishing equipment. Wild brook trout populations have been diminishing over decades. Cold water habitat is in decline due to reduced stream flow and warming waters. These traditional lifeways are wholly integrated. 
Myth is not separate from science, and we can observe that in how Wabinaki peoples are adapting to climate change. Richard Silliboy, a vice chief in the Rostock Band of Mi'kmaqs, carries a craft tradition of weaving baskets made from the ash tree. As he weaves, Silliboy tells creation myths of the Wabanaki peoples, quote, I think about my past. I think about my family. Think about the creator. Think about the problems that we face as Native Americans. And always trying to resolve some problem that's out of my reach, quote, he says. A few strategies of climate adaptation have been implemented. The Passamaquoddy tribe have been given $5 million through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Laws Voluntary Community-Driven Relocation Program. The Mi'kmaq community has responded to declining trap populations by opening a trap fishery in Caribou. A third of that goes to feed the tribe's members, the other two-thirds goes to market, acting as an avenue for tribal wealth building whilst maintaining trap populations in the wild. The Trust for Public Land, a conservation group, bought a 31,000-acre tract of forest land and returned it to the Penobscot Tribal Stewardship. In upcoming episodes, I will discuss what traditional ecological knowledge is and go into detail about the current on-the-ground efforts by tribal nations to adapt to climate change. Thanks for listening. This is Luna for New England Climate Conversations. Back to you, Owen. That's all for this week's episode. Thank you to everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite social media platform and share it with your friends. Also, if there are any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, feel free to reach out via social media or leave a comment on our YouTube channel. See you next week when we'll discuss the impacts of climate change on wind and air quality.